Back in the 1980s, if you were opening an office in a new city, you'd typically multiply the number of employees by about two to 300 square feet to figure out just how much office space you would need. By 2019, just before the pandemic, that number had gone down to 126 square feet. That means over the course of about 40 years, the amount of office space employers have planned for each employee has shrunk by half. So the office has been evolving for years without raising much of an eyebrow, but now, two and a half years into the pandemic, when we consider the office and how it's going to look, we're kind of in TBD territory. TBD, to be determined. That's how Victor Canalog, who's the head of commercial real estate economics for Moody's Analytics, characterizes this moment. This is BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall. And in this conversation recorded at Moody's office in the financial district, Victor is talking through some of his office vacancy predictions, the outlook for the next 18 to 24 months in commercial real estate, and why he thinks definitive answers on how remote work impacts careers is the main thing that's going to show us how offices will look long term. Before COVID, we were always concerned, and that's what we measured in our firm, economic occupancy. In other words, I don't care if your people are there, as long as there's a tenant paying the lease, your space is occupied and it's bringing in rental income, economic occupancy. The reality is that I think depending on the industry and the company and the job function, we probably work in the office five days a week anyway. You're here conducting a live interview. You got sales folks visiting clients. The McKinsey's of this world actually try to spend as many days as possible in their client site. And so we were never in the office 100% of the time, but gosh, COVID really put that into stark clarity when physical occupancy in New York offices by one estimate dropped to like 3% at its worst. We're at about, I looked at it this week, we're at about 40% occupancy in New York. Are you surprised at where we're at? We're two and a half years in at this point. I can't say I am, at least in the near term. And there are all sorts of cliches about this, but the COVID really let that genie of hybrid work out of the bottle. And the tough conversation that I think employers are having right now who still want to bring their people back is, why do you need me back in the office when I've shown that for two years I can be productive and possibly enjoy my work more? Now, this is not going to hold for everyone. I'm speaking in generality. Some folks prefer to be in the office. I don't know. Maybe you live with a family in a small one bedroom and you know you have a yapping dog or it's just not conducive. Yeah, so you might want to go to the office, but for... In terms of a large, in a large measure, you've still got that push and pull. And what's really compounding that is that's incredibly tight labor market where employees are really pushing back. Do you think we're at normality? Because it felt like for a while it was just like, oh, this is the current crisis. This is the current variant. We'll know after Labor Day. We'll know after the holidays. We'll know this and that soon. I, I do think that politically and psychologically speaking, we are quote unquote done with a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> now, that could be a good or a bad thing depending on your risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. But unlike other countries, I don't think there's any appetite for any kind of restrictive lockdown. I think for the most part, when you hear that a colleague has come down with it, you're like, okay. See you next week. See you next week. Hope you're doing okay, right? So I think we're normal in that sense. What 
appears to still be TBD to be determined is whether this is the new normal for the workplace. I think that conversation is still happening and I think mistakes will be made on both sides. In other words, there are gonna be some companies who are gonna just impose it so firmly on their employees that a lot of their most talented workers is just not gonna fly for them and they're gonna run that risk that those folks are gonna leave, right? Especially since some companies are on the other side of the equation using that as a recruiting tool. I've heard clients say, every time a law firm says, come back to the office five days a week, it's my recruiting signal to just ask folks in that company to say, you wanna come work with us, we're more flexible interesting, right? And so with that kind of tight labor market, I think it's still very much in flux. One of the things that I think will determine the new normal and or where we settle is when we have more information about people's career trajectories. And I think that's going to be incredibly telling. Example, before COVID, we all kind of shrugged our shoulders and said, hey, if you're in a backwater branch and you're not, in Central HQ, your career is probably just not going to be as fast or exciting, or you're just not going to progress as fast up the ranks. That was just, I don't think it was an HR issue back then, right? It was just that your career options were limited if you weren't at the center of where big decisions were being made. Now, in this new world of hybrid versus office, there's still the reality, psychologists call it proximity bias, mm. right? If the boss is in the office and there's a crisis brewing and there are two or three key people who are there that he or she can pull into a meeting, they're not meaning to be exclusive, but that person working hybrid or remote that day, they're not gonna be in that quick meeting, are they? And so I wonder if it's gonna be an issue three, five years from now, hey, I chose hybrid. Hey, I chose to work five days a week. That's where the boss is, right? hey, I, I, I chose to work three days a week. Let's take a look at where the careers of the, hold, holding all else equal. And will it become a centrifugal force pulling people back to the office? So I think that's still to be, I, I don't think we have data, right? Because people are jumping around and getting promoted by leaving their current company, right? But what about your careers within that company? I think that's an open question. So you're an economist, right? So yes. you're you're <laughs> you're for having good or for it. Yeah. <laughs> you're having to look at psychology and human behavior. Yes. That might be making an impact on the value of assets. That's exactly right because I do think that, you know, for good or for ill economists ha tend to be intellectual imperialists anyway and we try we pretend that we take a look at everything else that might influence things like decision making. Mm -hmm in the presence of constraints. That's what economics basically is. It's you're trying to optimize a decision, you're subject to constraints. What's the result? So that in my view is what economists do. I happen to focus on commercial real estate, but yes, because of perceptions, because of changing risk tolerance, because of revealed behavior. Oh, I loved it. The economists don't trust surveys. I'll tell you why. Why? <laughs> when they ask you for what you feel, right, there are all sorts of things that convince you to select either A or B. Will my manager see what I wrote? Is this truly anonymous? How will this impact me? I think my boss wants me to say, I want to go back to the office. But then there's revealed behavior, right? There's what you actually do. 
And I think there is that disconnect even right now in the broader economy where you got sentiment, Mariam, you, 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 you cover this every day. What does sentiment feel like in the U.S. right now heading into a possible economic downturn? Everyone feels tired, stressed, and over it. It's negative, right? It's it's sentiment negative. is negative. You've got the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey at its lowest point, mm -hmm. I think, in something out of 50 years, right? And yet, when you look at the economic numbers, backward-looking to be fair, people are still spending. Consumer spending is up. More on services, less on goods. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting development, very much related to COVID, because we're still transitioning. We're still reopening a lot of things. We're still figuring out whether it's cool to go to a restaurant even as COVID spikes again, right? And so for the last three or four quarters, you could see the numbers. People are spending more on services despite high prices. People are spending more on travel despite airline prices rising by over 33% year over year, right? And so it's it, like sentiment is negative. This is how I feel. But everyone's spending. <laughs> and yet people are spending. And so when people ask me, are we in a recession right now? I really can't say. Fortunately, it's not my job whether or not to say we're in a recession, right? But, but you don't think we are? In terms of revealed behavior, not yet. But I do think a lot of companies are preparing for the increased probability that we're going to run into some kind of economic challenge very soon. Considering all of this, considering what's up is down and down is up yes. and people are sentiment is bad yet everyone's spending people fill out surveys that, that, that may not even be true what kinds of conclusions have you drawn about the future of office and these the values of this incredibly well what we've always perceived to be incredibly valuable asset class I think that from a fundamentals point of view and by fundamentals I mean what fundamentally drives income like rents and vacancies for these commercial properties, expenses as well if you can keep that down. I think it's gonna be a rocky 18 to 24 months. That's what we've been projecting for some time. Because as leases come up, companies are now going to decide how much space do we really need if physical occupancy is still 40% in New York, mid 40s in the nation according to Castle, a little bit higher in the Texas of this world, right? And we can talk about that later. And so it's gonna be a rocky, 18 to 24 months as a lot of leases come up and companies decide, all right, I renewed that lease during COVID, but now we really need less space. I think it was public in a Wall Street Journal pretty article pretty recently that the CFO of Moody's Corporation said, look, we're looking to optimize our use of real estate and we're expecting savings of tens of millions of dollars that we will then reinvest in hiring and promotion and so on and so forth. But I think the general statement there is, if we run into an economic downturn, that makes it worse, right? Now people are gonna go and say, tight labor market, gosh, I really wanna retain this talent. Usually you'd lay people off, but now the decision may well be, we really don't use that space. How much can we save by doing that while retaining our valuable workforce? Isn't that an interesting dynamic? It's interesting because a lot of real estate CEOs say the opposite, which is, oh, if there's a recession, everyone will run back to the office because they're scared about their jobs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's probably some that a similar dynamic working, but it, it's not the office necessarily, but really, you know, sticking, yes, yeah, sticking yeah. close to where your decision maker is. And who has the ultimate power and say over your career and compensation? Where is that person located? So I do think that place still matters. But so much of it is preference. What if your boss has been all remote 
all this time? What if your boss is in another state, right? And is that gonna matter as much if you're not seeing each other face-to-face -face as often? I do think though that again, hearkening back to just general principles that the pandemic has really brought to brought much clarity towards, I think that folks are much more mindful about making sure we're gathering with intent, right? So that's a general principle. There's a time and place for when we gather. So you've made a couple of predictions. One of the predictions is that vacancy could go to a record high. Yep. And if I'm remembering it correctly, the record high for New York was just under 20%. 1991, again, the context there, because I do like history, yes. is that that was the savings and loan crisis in the United States. And a lot of banks actually went under as they lent to an asset that was relatively illiquid, like commercial real estate. Our expectation is that we might break those record highs at the U.S. level if this recession does happen and if it's harder than we all are hoping that it would be. What right? is it right now? It won't take much to hit that record because we're already at 18.4%. Okay, so we only need a tiny little bit. Yeah, the, vac the vacancy rate, like, right, that's right back of the napkin calculations, but it's literally if, you know, if 15, 20% of the leases coming up don't resign or reduce a space right. by X, we, we'll get there. And well, that's the thing about the oil. Even during the last 10 years of a very slow economic recovery, I, I don't think that office was the asset with which investors were enamored anyway. You didn't have vacancies falling below 16% at the national level. By contrast, we were at 12.5% vacancies before the great financial crisis. It spiked to 17.6% during right. 2010. It never fell, yes, it never fell below 16%. So it's a really slow recovery, right? And then suddenly, because of COVID, we, re we reached a high of 18.5%. But how bad could it get? Yeah, so our downside scenarios are calling for 20 to 22% national vacancies. That's the worst downside scenario at this point. But that build, that's based on a whole lot of assumptions, right? And I think it could get that bad or, 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 you know, there's also some studies there that just basically say actually the new office means more space for employees because now you have to allocate space for things like amenities, mm -hmm. right? And so it's evolving. On the downside, we do want to be aware. We do want to approach this risk with both eyes open, right? And that's our fiduciary duty when clients ask how bad could it get to give them that downside scenario. But note that that's not our, our baseline scenario, right? That's one of our downside scenarios if we encounter some kind of economic activity pullback. I've been speaking to a lot of lenders and all of them say we, uh, office is very hard to refinance right now. Very hard to finance. We're very uncertain. We just can't predict how people are going to behave. What they're going to do is they're going for each asset that's seeking money, whether equity or debt or refinancing or new, right? They're going to look at each tenant, right? And then they're going to try to estimate what's called the renewal probability. Whether or not these people are going to, so usually the rule of thumb is it's 70%, okay? So in any underwriting exercise, if you have a platform that will at some point run the numbers and value the property for you, you're going to assume 
a renewal rate of 70%. It could be as low as 55%. There's a top line number that I read um, a little while ago. It was out of NYU and they say that office value oh, yeah. 500 billion white. Science paper, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you subscribe to that kind of, I, I believe they had the word apocalypse uh, <laughs> yes. uh -huh. in the title. Do you subscribe to that kind of I think that... Like, have you put a number on the value that could be white? No, uh, traditionally that's not something that we end up forecasting, thank God, right? However, I do think that the extremes tend not to happen. Like, the, the most extreme predictions that I've seen, it's usually somewhere in the middle, right? I know that's oversimplifying things, but a lot of these, and I do run forecasts, right? A lot of these forecasts will be based on your parameters by how much of the variable move here as well as your assumptions will the variable move like a sine wave or a cosine wave and so on and so forth so if you read the paper great paper by the way very technical you can't question the math because they've parameterized they've set up the game so that it'll behave like that right also they're basing it on leasing data that I know fairly well actually that really you've only had couple of years of data to base that on, right? So that's the whole point of our conversation where you're like, okay, the pendulum swung this way. Will it really swung this way? If you assume X, Y, and Z, then that's not out of bounds. It is possible, right? But what we found is, so let's take the historical context. Remember I told you that one measure of demand for office was cut in half over 40 years? Mm -hmm. 260 square feet per employee in the 1980s, down to around 126. By 2019. COVID. Right, in 2019. So for over 39 years, it was office demand was reduced by half. But if you take a look at measures of, uh, you know, there's NACREF's NPI, right? Their net property index, mm -hmm. which tries to measure both your returns from income and appreciation. This is what differentiates commercial from right. residential. Right? Residential is just price appreciation. Yeah. You don't earn any, but, but yeah, but commercial is, you know, prices can appreciate, but you can also earn income as you hold on to it, right? You look at NACRIF's NPI, it's flat relative to 1979, mm -hmm. right? And so it goes up and down. The 1990s was pretty severe when it went down because, you know, office vacancies were at a record high of 19.7%. There was a lot of downsides too in, you know, 08 and 09 and during the tech crash. The tech crash was actually an extended car crash. Did you know that, I'll show you the numbers, but nationally speaking, effective rents for the office sector started crashing in 2000, 2001. It didn't become positive again, growth rates, till 2005. It was like a four-year car crash, right? San Francisco never recovered because they were at the epicenter of the tech crash. So ups and downs, but flat relative to nine. So you're telling me that office one measure of office demand was cut in half, but somehow asset managers and investors helped the sector evolve so that on a per square foot basis, value was preserved, right? Isn't that interesting? So, so now I'm not saying that there weren't tectonic forces working underneath. Tens of millions of square feet, for example, of office space that used to be like this, were converted into medical office, right? So when that left inventory, that probably helped keep prices up. Is that right? So it's, you're, not look, you're not looking at the constant base. The base is changing too. So then I'm like, okay, value destruction, 
But of the remain, however we define the asset class 10 years from now, whatever the forecast horizon is, you know, based on the properties that are actually trading, we might actually see like, you know, depending on whether or not the asset manager succeed. Value is improving? Is that what you're about to say? I, it is absolutely not outside the realm of possibility. It might well become that bifurcated world where I don't know what to do with the suburban B-class office space here, but in New York, we're doing just fine, thank you. I could also see a world like that. What I'm really getting a sense from you is this complexity that would be impossible. Like if we were sitting around this d table trying to do a bank loan, <laughs> you know, we're trying to think about how humans are going to behave, how people might want to be, how people's careers are going to be affected, it's, the it's, values people have and the choices they make. I think it's always been complex. You just have to like make simplifying assumptions and do it. I think over time, tools of workflow tools, even things like Excel and spreadsheets, right? They've really adapted to allow us to consider more of this complexity through things like scenarios, right? Go upside, downside, and so on and so forth. It's always been complex. That's Victor Canalog. He's the head of commercial real estate economics for Moody's Analytics. There's links to some of our offers reporting in the show notes. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.